Good morning, church. How's everybody doing? Yeah, good to see you. If, if you're here for the first time, I just want to welcome you this morning. So uh, my name is Philip, and um, I'm just excited to be a part of what God is doing here. And so if you're here for the first time, welcome. And of course, to all of the family members here, good to see your beautiful faces. Easter is coming soon, and we're so excited. Anybody else excited for Easter? Yeah, okay. Um, and so we're just so excited, and as Catherine kind of said, it just, we're just uh, excited to kind of just move forward and just celebrate such a beautiful time. And so uh, let's, let's pack the house out for Easter. Um, you know, what's really cool is that there are four times a year where you have an elevated excuse to invite somebody to church. And uh, the first one is Christmas Eve. The second one is Easter. And what I mean by elevated invite, like, you'll most likely, there's, like, a good chance that someone might say, yeah, I would go. And so, like, Easter is an opportunity. Sometimes we're afraid to kind of invite people, whatever. We don't want, to like, people to say no or get rejected or all those things. But Easter is an opportunity where people will, will come. And so I want to empower you to invite somebody. And, um, and can anybody guess what the other one is? I think I've said this before. Mother's Day. Mother's Day is another one where like everyone will go to church for their mama. They won't go for their dad. Uh, Father's Day is a little bit lower attended, but Mother's Day, they'll go for mama. And, uh, and then the second week of January, because just like the gyms are filling up, the churches are filling up because everybody is making um, a New Year's wish list, right? And so if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been kind of in a six-week-long series uh, where we spent two weeks talking about sex. And uh, I know that is a topic that sounds dangerous, but the problem is, is that we serve the God who created it. And so if we know the God who created it, we shouldn't be silent about it. And the problem, I think, with uh, a lot of us is that um, uh, the church, because the church is silent about these topics, we serve a God who actually created sex, and we should celebrate it, but people are kind of all nervous and scared about it. So we spent two weeks, I don't want to spend too long on that, uh, and we had a great time. Then we spent two weeks talking about single, singleness. Any singles in the house? Right, it's just not very strong. Every time, I expect singles to go crazy, especially after you heard my sermon, you should be like, woo, just tells me you need to go back to the podcast, and so we spent two weeks on singleness, and, uh, and it, it was an amazing time, and last week we started our sermon um, on marriage, and this morning we're going to conclude um, our message on marriage, but please, if you're not married... Um, don't uh, let me lose you this morning. I believe God is going to minister to you, minister to you, because His Word doesn't come back void. And so, if you're this, if you're here this morning, you're single, or you maybe you're uh, divorced. I don't want you to feel left out. I believe that the principles in here will still minister to your life this morning. And, and if you're married, put your seatbelts on. Um, and I'm going to do my best to make sure that this isn't a bumpy road, but you know me, I like to throw little zingers every now and again, but I promise I'll give you all a heads up um, before they come. But with that being said, I actually kind of want to open up by making a, a really important general statement. I think in the last six weeks, one of the most important things that we have learned and if you're a note taker, write this down. And if you just are a memorizer, memorize this. One of the most important things that I think we've learned in the last six weeks is this. 
the creator has the authority to define his creation. The creator has the authority to define his creation. And in knowing that lesson, there's some heavy implications that could really help us move forward in our discipleship. And so let me explain. The first implication is this. When you and I interact with creation according to the way the designer originally designed it, we're then bringing glory to God. Did you know that? When you and I interact with creation according to the way that God originally designed it, we are bringing glory to the designer. But the other implication, on the other hand, is this. When you and I interact with creation outside of the way the designer originally designed it, then we're making what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, we're making a worship exchange in Romans 1. Let me explain to you a little bit about that means. So when it comes to our sermon series, when it comes to regardless of whether it's sex or sexuality, whether it is singleness or whether it is marriage, when we operate in these things outside of the designer's original design, we bring glory to the creation rather than the creator. And what ends up happening is both are forms of worship, but one is a form of idolatry. Are you with me on this? So when God designed sexuality, he defined his design. But what man tends to do is redefine what God has already what? Defined. And so whenever you and I begin to move in the designer's way, whenever you and I begin to move in the way that the designer designed it, we bring glory to him. We worship him according to the way that he created it. But when we act outside of the design, we are worshiping. But instead of worshiping the creator, we begin to worship the creation. And we become guilty of idolatry. And so I think that is so important. And so for today, there's kind of two questions that I want to ask and help answer um, so that we can leave out of here with a better understanding of what God has for our marriages. Amen. The first question is this. How does the designer define marriage? And the second question is, how does the designer define the individual roles of marriage? So I prayed this week because I know that this is a sensitive subject in our culture. I know that this is going to be a sensitive subject this morning. And so I am going to make a promise to tread sensitively and lightly this morning, but I still want to be honest with you, amen? So as I pray for you, will you pray for me this morning, knowing that the culture has tried to redefine some things, I'm going to make an attempt to state God's definition, and in that, because we're so used to being a part of culture that is redefined, we might find a little fight and tension in this, and that's okay. So as I pray for you this morning, I want you to just pray for me that I would be able to communicate God's will effectively, and that also we would walk out of here in grace and in truth, and that we'd walk out of here knowing what God has for us and not feel any condemnation, but we would know truth, amen? So let's pray, and again, as I pray for you, will you just pray for me? So Heavenly Father... I thank you this morning for uh, all those that are here, married and single. I thank you for, uh, you've brought, you've purposed everyone in here this morning to be here. And I pray that your word would not come back void, that it would accomplish everything that you've set it out to accomplish. And I pray that I would do my best to step out of the way 
and that you would speak through me. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you do what you do. You translate this message to every individual heart in here. Lord, even though I'm preaching one sermon, I know, Holy Spirit, you have multiple sermons for everyone in this room. And so I pray that you would take it, you would water the seed, it would be planted in good soil, and would grow uh, to bear fruit uh, for your honor and for your glory in the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So let's start off with the first question. How does the designer define marriage? How does God define marriage? Well, really simple. According to scripture, marriage is a covenant. It's a contract, but in scripture, it's a covenant. And it's a covenant between a heterosexual monogamous couple. Plain and simple according to scripture. You see, the Old Testament defines marriage in Genesis 2.24. And if you remember, the Old Testament defines marriage in Genesis 2.24 during the creation narrative. And God defines marriage as this. One man, one woman, one flesh. One man, one woman, one flesh. And again... If you have an issue with that, I understand, but I'm just telling you what Scripture says. So in the Old Testament, Old Testament defines marriage in Genesis 2.24 as one man, one woman, and one flesh. Now, the New Testament affirms the Old Testament definition in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. And then the Apostle Paul not only affirms what Genesis says, but the Apostle Paul also adds something. He says, not only is it one man, one woman, one flesh, but the Apostle Paul calls marriage um, a profound mystery that refers to Christ and the church. It's a beautiful thing. And if you want to know more about that, we actually last week talked about the mystery of marriage, and you are more than welcome to go back and check our podcast out. So again, the Old Testament defines it. The New Testament affirms it. Now, I want to stop for a moment and explain something that as I was studying and getting ready for this that I think is really important that we should know as a church There are times and occasions in the scriptures where you will see polygamy. Have you seen that? You'll see polygamy in the scriptures. In fact, you'll see men of God take multiple wives. And nowhere is that more clear than King Solomon. Y'all, anybody know how many wives Solomon had? 700. Men were like, oh, (laughs) I don't know, it's a lot of shopping. Now, you have to understand, during the time of Solomon, not all of them were his live-in wives. There were a lot of times, as kings, that was a way to broker contracts between other nations. And so what you do is you take multiple wives, and that was a way of creating a peace treaty. Isn't that kind of, and the wife was kind of a collateral for that. Um, And that was a way of uh, creating a peace treaty. Nonetheless, here's what I want you to know about Scripture. Scripture reports polygamy, but never condones it. Never condones it. And so you'll find in the Old Testament, one woman, one man, one flesh. You'll see in the New Testament affirming that. And so the Old Testament defines it. The New Testament affirms it. And Jesus Christ settles it. And so if you have your Bibles, and we'll have it up here for you, uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 19. And I'm going to read verses 4 through 6. And this is Jesus responding to a question that's being asked to him regarding divorce. And so again, remember, the Old Testament defines it. The New Testament affirms it. Jesus is going to settle it by answering this question um, regarding divorce. Uh, Matthew chapter 19, 4 through 6. 
And it reads like this. He answered, and this is referring to Jesus, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And here's what Jesus said. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now this is the point I really, Jesus adds to this by saying, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus adds to our understanding regarding marriage, telling us that in every lawful marriage, there is a kind of spiritual joining that's taking place. Every wedding that you go to, a lawful wedding that you go to between a man and a woman, whether they're believers or not, I want you to know that God is there. And when they are saying their vows and when they are saying I do, they're not just coming together via a ceremony, but God is fusing them together in the unseen when you said yes whether you whether your husband got on your nerves or your wife got on your nerves or when you said yes something was taking place in the spiritual realm and it was the heavenly father saying I am ordaining this and I am fusing you together which is why your husband and your wife is like your arms and your legs I said this last week are you with me Something's taking place in the unseen. Now, I want to read to you a quote from a pastor and an author, and his name is Ray Ortland. Listen to what he writes. If you are married, even if your marriage in some ways disappoints you, still God was the one who joined you two together. Your imperfect marriage in the world of today is as sacred in the sight of God as was the perfect marriage between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Your marriage is a grace from above. Your marriage is a miracle. Your marriage came to you with the touch of God upon it, and it remains dear to him. Now listen to this. Your marriage has the potential by his grace to bring redemption into the broken world we all live in now. Your imperfect marriage is therefore worth celebrating. Jesus thought so. And so now that we know how the designer uh, defines his marriage design, the question that I really want to dive into this morning is, how does the designer then define the individual roles in marriage? Now, to answer this question, we're going to need to look at three different types of roles in Scripture. We're going to need to look at the role of humanity, the role of gender, and then we're going to finish this morning by looking at the role of husband and wife. And so we're going to kind of move kind of this progressive movement so that we can get a clear understanding of husband and wife. Are you with me? And so let's go to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. And if you're just taking notes, you can write this down. We're going to flash these on the screen. But in Genesis chapter 1, 27 through 28. Um, Genesis chapter 1, 27 through 28. And it reads like this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, 
Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Here's what I want to tell you. One of the roles of humanity is to reflect and reproduce. One of the roles of humanity that was given to humanity, or two of the roles, is to reflect and reproduce. Now, we're told in Genesis that man and woman, male and female, were both created in whose image? In God's image. Now, the image of God is complex. And I don't want to, this is just a survey. I don't have time to unwrap the image. But it's complex. But just to simplify for you this morning, mankind was created to reflect its creator to creation. Image was placed in male and female. We were given the image of God so that we could reflect God to his creation. We could reflect the creator to his creation. So mankind's role, are you ready for this? Mankind's role is to represent God as ambassadors, as his ambassadors on this earth. Number two. Now, we're also told that they're not only created in the image of God, but we're also told that both male and female were given a creation mandate. What do I mean by that? God said, be fruitful and multiply. You know what that means? Make some babies, y'all. Y'all know how that goes. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, this refers to the continuation of the species through reproduction. So we were called and we were designed to reflect, and we were also called and designed to re produce. Now put this together and you see the role of humanity a little clear. We're not only called to reflect God, but to reproduce multiple reflections throughout the earth. Do you see that? So you and I are not only called as mankind to be God's ambassadors to the creation, but we're also called to create other ambassadors and to let the entire earth, I love what my wife said, be filled with God's glory. You are the image of God. You carry his glory. And so when we multiply, we have the opportunity to fill the earth with his glory. Amen. Now, if you just turn over to Genesis chapter 2. So that's all in Genesis 1. Again, this is not an exhaustive study. I'm just surveying so I can get to the major point. We're still talking about the role of humanity. If you turn over to Genesis chapter 2, 15, something else happens. Scripture says this. The Lord God took the man... And put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Why don't you all just say this when you say work it, work it, and keep it. I'm not going there. We see in Scripture two more responsibilities emerge. I'm teaching a little bit this morning. Don't worry, I'll get a little crazy. You'll see my vein popping out in a minute. And you'll start feeling a little tingles. But let your brain get ministered to this morning, okay? So there are two more responsibilities emerge. So we know that human, mankind was created to reproduce and reflect. But two more responsibilities emerge, specifically given to Adam. We are to work and we are to keep. To work simply means to prepare the ground. And to keep simply means to protect it. It means to prepare and to protect. And so if you put humanity's role together in a nutshell, this is what we're saying. When all four elements are put together, you can see that the role of humanity is to reflect, reproduce, garden, and guard the garden. That's humanity's role. Now, to take a little bit of a discipleship detour, or if I could time out right, and get out of this. Can I share something with you? 
now that we know, know humanity's role, as Christians, you and I should be advocates of the environment. Do you know that? Usually we think, well, that's kind of those crazy Greenpeace people, and that's, we don't do that. You know, it's those liberals and, you know, you know right? And, the, you know, the conservatives are praying about the liberals. The liberals complain about conservatives. I'm like, Jesus was neither, right? He wasn't even American, so good luck with that, right? <laughs> right? He wasn't either Democrat or Republican. People think, oh, he's on this side. That. No, 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 no. Y'all got it twisted. But let me tell you something. You know, God has called us to garden and guard. So did you know that every time you litter, you're acting outside of what God has called you to do? I know that sounds silly, right? Like, why would you take a, it's a discipleship detour, but we should care about the environment. Yo, every time you walk around and you just throw some trash on the ground, you're acting outside of the creator's mandate. You're sinning. You're meant to guard and guard and guard in the earth, not destroy it. But you see what sin has done, right? I mean, we built so many nuclear weapons. It's just a matter of time before we destroy ourselves. Somebody asked, why does Jesus need to come back? Well, he needs, if he don't come back and sin allows itself to progress, we'll kill ourselves eventually. You know that? If it, let me tell you this. For, those, for some atheists that believe, well, you know, man is just going to continue to find a way. No, if sin goes to its furthest extent, it ultimately destroy itself. Right? And we, this, this whole nuclear thing that's going on, and we're all on edge at certain points, we can see, hey, we continue to progress to a place. We have enough bombs where we, we can mess ourselves up. We, could, we can destroy the species. And so man was meant to garden and guard. <laughs> And so this is so important. And, and, and if I were to take another discipleship detour, if you will, here's what else I want to point out to you. Did you know that work existed prior to sin? Man was called to work prior to the fall. Work isn't the result of sin. You know what it was? What, the result of sin was every time I work, I perspire and thorn and thistle grow. And, and when I work, creation bites back at me. And so work becomes a pain. My body aches. But did you know that there are some of you in here today that we love, man, we love to work. We love to create. If we had nothing to do, if we were just sitting around all day, we'd be bored. God put that in us. And before man sinned, man worked. So you ready for this? Just like littering is a sin, to be lazy is a sin. To be uncreated, to be unmoved, to not move in work and not move in creating, to not search for what God has called you to do, to be still for a prolonged period of time is actually outside of what God has called you to do. Are you with me? So as we understand humanity's role, it positions us to then understand the role of gender. Y'all ready for this? Now, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, Adam is tasked with gardening and what? Guarding. Let's try that again because that was not really good. Adam was tasked with gardening and guarding. Thank you. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, one verse later in verse 16, Adam is given a command from the Lord. And listen to this command. It's familiar. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But that one you can't eat, right? But of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, you shall not eat. For in the day that you do, you shall what? Surely die. Now, I need to make two critical points here. And I'm not trying to go theological and talk about sin. I'm talking about gender, so stay with me. I want to make two critical points that need to be made. Number one, Adam was created first. That's scripture. Adam was created first. Eve doesn't exist 
when God tasks and commands Adam. Y'all with me? So that's number one. Secondly, since Adam was the one who received the task and command directly from God, it is Adam who carries the responsibility of leadership. Now I want you to look at Genesis chapter 2 verse 18. Listen to what the Lord says. The Lord looks around. The Lord said, it's not good that man should be alone. Now, why does God make this statement? There's two reasons I believe why God makes this statement. It's not good for man to be alone. Two reasons. Number one, Adam is created in God's image. And God is Trinitarian, isn't he? And so he's relational by what? By nature. Which means Adam is relational by nature. And you know, God's kind of messed up if you read the story. You know what God does? He, he, he takes Adam, and Adam sits down. He says, Adam, I want you to do me a favor. I'm going to march all these animals by you, and I want you to name them. And so Adam's like, this is great. So all, imagine all these animals walking by, and Adam's just like, long neck, you know, whatever, <laughs> big toe, right, little ears, right, whatever he's saying. Some of you are like, well, did he say elephant? No, he didn't say all of that, right? Um, so he's naming according to how he's seeing in the way he's, he's not just stewarding God's creation, but God's giving him ownership. You see that? And so he's naming, but here's what happens. After all these animals march, he's probably having a great time. But then he realizes something. You know what he realized? Wait, there ain't none for me. <laughs> They're all marching by, and they all kind of got their own little place and space. But I, I feel what? I feel alone. I feel, I feel alone. And God did that on purpose because Adam needed to realize his need before he could appreciate what he has. Right? And so, so God says, look, it's not good for you to be alone. And so he puts, y'all know the story, he puts Adam into a deep sleep. And I told you the first reason why it's not good for Adam to be alone, because he was created for relationship. He was created for intimacy. And when you look at a draft, that ain't happening. And so Adam went into a deep sleep. And so he was created to have relational interaction. I'm not just talking about sex. I'm talking about a compatibility of minds and purpose and will and heart, not just body. Are you guys with me? And so Adam was created for intimacy. But number two, and this is important, it would be impossible for Adam to accomplish the tasks God has given him without Eve. Are you with me? It would be impossible for Adam to accomplish the task that God has given him without Eve. So verse 18 concludes with the Lord saying, I'm going to make a helper fit for him. I'm going to make a helper fit for him. Now, this is how scripture defines gender roles. Are you ready? Put your seatbelt on because the culture is going to be in an uproar in a moment. Here it is. Male is head and female is help. Now, please don't read into this as disempowerment. What God is really saying is this. The head can't accomplish all that God has called him to do without her help. By calling Eve help, he's not just saying something about Eve, but he's saying something about Adam. He's saying, Adam can't do what God has called me to do unless somebody comes alongside him and helps him accomplish these goals on the earth. He can't reproduce on his own, y'all. It don't work. And so Eve is called help and Adam is called head. Now, please, let me break this down a little further because, again, our culture has, has tortured this. And they've got it wrong. When we say head and we point to the male headship, this is what we're saying. Head is about responsibility, not about ability. 
When we say Adam was called to be the head, it doesn't mean that he's better than Eve in every way. Because sin, it bring, the, sin brings in the institution of slavery and domination. That's not what God created. That was sin that did that. And so when we say head, we say this, Adam is responsible. And so when God comes walking down, he doesn't call Eve. He says, Adam, come here. Are you with me on this? Adam is held accountable as head. So important. And when we say help, this is about collaboration, not domination. And again, unfortunately, sin has distorted what was meant to be glorifying. And we're left redefining God's design as if it were the problem and not sin. Are you guys with me on this? I'm going to switch up real quick if you guys can help me out. I know I'm throwing a curveball. So I want to repeat this again. Sin has distorted what God has meant to be glorifying to him. And we're left redefining God's design as if the design were the problem and not us. So there are three ways that you and I can interpret head and help role of gender. Are you ready for this? The first one is complete me. The second one is compete me. And the third one is compliment me. There are three ways that you and I can interpret this. Complete me, compete me, or compliment me. Let me explain the first one. The complete me interpretation is a distortion of sin. Listen to what it says. Those that operate in this way find their value in their partner. They devalue themselves by saying, I need someone else to what? Complete me. And so they devalue themselves and they find their value in the opposite of their partner. This is the complete me interpretation, and it is a distortion of what God truly meant. The person who is the complete me, their insecurity says something like this. I'm not worth anything unless you're with me. I find my purpose and my worth in serving you. And we see that all the time. Secondly, the way you can interpret this is the compete me. This interpretation is a distortion of sin as well. But unlike the complete me, those that operate in this find their value in seeing their partner as their competition. Their insecurities say something like, I don't need you. I'm just as good without you. It's an overcompensation. Are you with me? Both of these are distortions. Both exist in our society and seem to be knee-jerk reactions towards one another. But I, I believe that the more biblical, accurate view is compliment me. Can I explain? And let me tell you what I mean by that. This is the only view that celebrates equal value without compromising the uniqueness of role. Are you with me? For like, look, just smile at me real quick. This is, the only, this is the only one, the only view that celebrates equal value without compromising the uniqueness of different roles. In this view, your value is not based on your performance. 
it's not based on how well you can do something or what you can do, but it's based on the fact that you are both created in the image of God and therefore you are infinitely valuable. Scripture says male and female created in the image. And so you are valued not based on what you do or how you do it, but because God has put his image inside of you. When we understand that, it's out of security and not insecurity that we can each play our different roles, not our same roles, and the mission of God is accomplished on the earth. And so what I want to do is now that we've discussed humanity's role, we have reflect, reproduce, garden, and guard. And now that we've looked at gender role and the help and the head, I want to talk about the role of husband and wife this morning. And so here's what I really want you to do. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to read verse 22 through 23, and we're going to attempt to put this in a landing. Verse 22 reads like this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. I hear the girls giggling. Even as Christ is head of the church, his body and himself is its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives, you should submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a husband shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she responds her husband. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. When you married, you reflected Christ and the church. It is a beautiful blend of two beautiful things. It is a beautiful blend of sacrificial divine love on the part of Christ, the husband, and it's also a blend of joyful human reverence on the part of the church, the wife. In the same way, husbands are called to love and wives are called to submit in this portion of Scripture. So what does it look like for a husband to love like Christ? And what does it look like for a wife to submit like the church? Let me deal with the wives first. Wives, submission is not a great word today. Submission feels like disempowerment. It feels like you're placing me below and under. And yes, sub, it means under. But if you realize, it says sub what? Mission. And so when you're submission, you're under a mission. In other words, you're willing to submit yourself so that a greater cause can be accomplished. When we go to war, we know that there are generals. When we go to work, we know that there are CEOs. When we go to church, we know that there are pastors and leaders. We know that we are equally valued. But in order for the mission to move forward, people need to play their role. Are you with me? So wives, submission, you want to know what it looks like? 
trusting. What does submission look like? Submission looks like this. It looks like trusting. It looks like being ready to yield to the headship of your husband. It looks like coming alongside him, encouraging and supporting. By the way, and just like I stated, this isn't just a healthy marriage principle. It's a healthy community principle. Without submission, nothing is done. Without submission, nothing takes place. Nothing is accomplished. There needs to be mutual submission. It takes place in the workplace. It takes place in the church. Submission, we accept it everywhere else but in the household. You know why we don't accept it? Because there's an enemy, a demonic spirit that's assaulting the definition of marriage. And marriages are being destroyed because we're blaming it on the definition and not our sin. Are you with me? And so... We should take this attitude towards one another. However, the church is a place where it's accomplished. But I want you to know for a husband and wife, the wife should look to the husband and look nowhere else but to display this more in that relationship. Can I just, can I, ladies, can I just say this? If there are other people that you're, if you're expressing more encouragement, more submission to aside from your husband, you need to go into the prayer closet and say, Lord, what's wrong? What's wrong here? Why, why, why am I more argumentative with him? Why, why when he says something, I'm, I'm triggered? I, my boss could say something and my, this person could say something and that. But how come in this relationship I seem to be, where in this area am I not what? Trusting. Now, husbands, Paul says, what does love look like for husbands? And all the ladies like, yes. Paul said, love looks like three things. Are you ready? Sacrifice, sanctify, and sustain. Sacrifice, sanctify, and sustain. Let me explain sacrifice. In verse 25, we're told, Christ gave himself up for one way you and I, and I put myself in this, one way you and I as husbands can love our wives more is thinking of ourselves less. Before I got married, there was a good man that came up to me, pulled me aside. He wasn't a man of many words, but he told me this. You know what, Philip, when you get married, I want you to know something. Men are a little selfish. He goes, we could be selfish sometimes. And he says, and so when you get married, just know when that comes up that God has called you to be selfless and not selfish. To think less of yourself and more of your family. To think less of yourself and more about your wife. Christ loved the church and he what? Gave himself up for her. What does this look like? The way that you and I as husbands can love our wives is the thinking of ourselves less as men. We can be selfish, but I challenge you to begin to pray this morning. Is there anything that I need to give up, stop doing, and start sacrificing in order to make my marriage a success? Will you men of God pray, is there anything that I need to give up? Stop doing or even sacrifice to make my marriage a success. And if that means softball on a Friday night with your buddies because you're out too late, then do it. No, Pastor Phil, see, you just messed me up. <laughs> Husbands, love your wife. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Number one, sacrifice. What does love look like in your marriage? Sacrifice. Number two, sanctify. We're told that Christ sanctifies her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Can I tell you, sanctification is beautification. It's the process by which the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, helps you and I grow in holiness. Y'all know that, right? You know, when we first came into this thing, we were all messed up. And then the Lord, began, we began to learn his word, and we started to grow. And before, the sin that we used to love, we start to not like, but we're still doing it. But there's a dislike now. And then God keeps growing, growing. And all of a sudden, we're not doing it as much. All of a sudden, there's a disdain, and then we're growing in holiness. And three years from relying, we don't look like our first year. Ten years down the road, we don't look like our third year. Twenty years, we don't look like our ten year. What happened was you were growing in holiness through the process of sanctification via the word of God. And so if some of you have been only in church for a year, two years, they're like, oh, my gosh, I'm not perfectly pure. You're not supposed to be. That was Jesus' job, but stay with it. He's growing you in holiness. His word is sanctifying you. Are you with me? It's a beautification process. Now, I'm going to say something that may sound odd, but I stand by this. Husbands, you're called to be your wife's primary discipler. But in order to accomplish her, discipling her, two things need to happen. Are you ready for this? Number one, as a man, you need to get in your word. You need to get in your word as a man. It's sad. And I, I'm going to go here, and I, I'm, I'm just because I'm a man, it's sad. But too many times I see the wives pushing the husbands to go to church. Too many times I see the wives pushing the husbands to read their word. The wives pushing the husbands. I see the wives pushing the husbands to go to Bible study, to seek out accountability, find some Christian friends. And the husbands are like, no, there's too many excuses. Husbands, you are responsible by God. You are called to be the one who pushes, not the one who needs to be pushed. But look what the Apostle Paul is saying. He sanctifies her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present her. I love this. Men of God, as heads of our household, God will hold you and I accountable for how we led our wives and our children. One day, we will present our family before God. And the question today is this, when it comes to the word of God, are you leading or are you allowing your wife to lead in this area? Please don't be condemned. Take this as the Lord speaking to you to take your rightful place in the home. Are you with me? As husbands, we should be growing in the word. Secondly, as husbands, we should be actively walking through the word with our wives. Can I encourage husbands today? And wives... Here's what you don't do. Don't go home and repeat this. Because that's they're not going to do it. That's not, that's not what it, see what Pastor Phil said. Because you're going to do two things. Here's what you're going to do. Ready? You know what? When you're fighting a spiritual battle, don't use fleshly weapons. All it does is strengthen the stronghold. Because the more you try to nag and the more you try to control and the more you try to put down and the more you try, you know what? It's not going to happen. In fact, there's going to be a greater wall that's going to say, you know what? I'm not going to go. You'll make them hate me. Pastor Phil said, I'm going to be, I'm, they're going to hate me. You should hang out with Pastor. No, I'm going to hang out with Pastor Phil. <laughs> Wives trust. Do too much control. Too much control. Let the Holy Spirit deal and pray. And pray. Let the Holy Spirit deal and be faithful and pray. I'm telling you, the man of God will hear the Lord. The man of God will hear the Lord. The Lord will speak. The man of God is heads. God's going to hold us accountable. One day, when we're standing at judgment, we're going to bring our entire families before the Lord. 
We're going to present our families to the Lord. And like the garden when Adam came down and somebody, or when God came down and someone had sinned, God didn't say, Eve, where are you? He didn't say, snake, where are you? What did he say? He went and said, where are you guys? And he went to Adam and said, what did I tell you? There's a responsibility that we carry whether we like it or not. God has put it inside all of us men to be the head, to protect, to guard, to keep. Are you with me? We should be actively walking our wives through the word. You know, I want to challenge you. Go on a journey together. Read the one-year Bible together. Take walks together and pray. Order a book together. Go through it with your wife. Make this a regular occurrence in your home. Finally, sustain. And I'm going to go ahead and invite Priscilla up, and we're going to finish here. Finally, sustain. Men are men of God. What does love look like? It looks like sustain. We're told in verse 29, we as husbands are called to nourish and cherish. In the same way we're called as husbands to sanctify our wives in the word of God, we're also called to nourish and cherish them with our words of encouragement. I know for a fact that from the beginning, this was a weakness in my life in particular. And there are many times, and I know for me personally many times, um, that we can, instead of building up, we can tear down with our words. We could tear down. As husbands, God's calling us to use our tongue as a tool to build and not as a weapon to destroy. And as head and leader, we're called to go first. When I say leadership, I don't mean domination. I mean you go first. There's a book that I read called Point Man. It's a really good book. Husbands, if you're interested in reading a book, it's called Point Man. In the beginning, it describes a Vietnam-like scene where there's a platoon, and the writer begins to write and gives you a scene of a platoon walking through the jungles in Vietnam, and, and there is a fear that there's going to be attack. And what a point man is is the one that goes what? In front. And it gave stats during Vietnam uh, how many point men died in Vietnam. I wish I had those stats, but it's unfathomable how many men that led that way died. Because they were walking into warfare. And so as the book, as the author is writing, he's, he's, as a man, you're reading it, you're imagining yourself being a point man for a platoon. And you're walking through and there's booby traps and, and at every corner there's a possibility, an opportunity for an enemy to take your life and the life of your men. And then all of a sudden while he's creating the scene in your mind, he says, all right, now stop thinking about a platoon and put your wife and your children behind you. You're the point man for your house. You're the point man in the spirit and there's an enemy that wants to destroy your family, wants to destroy your marriage, wants to destroy your children. And God is calling you to be accountable. And God is calling you to lead. And what does that mean, not dominate? That means you would go first, which means you might get hit first. You might get attacked first. But it also means you're the first to forgive. It also means you're the first to apologize. It also means you're the first to give an example that we're going to glorify God together. I'll never forget, my wife and I, we had a miscarriage. And I remember that we got out of the hospital knowing that we'd have a miscarriage and I seen it on her face she carried it differently because she carried the baby and as a man I couldn't really feel what she was feeling but I knew there was sorrow and I knew there was pain and I knew there was hurt and I knew she couldn't praise God in that moment and so I grabbed her hand and I said babe I know it's tough but we're going to praise God together we're going to thank him together we're going to worship him together and she grabbed my hand I led her through a praise and a worship and she'll tell you to this day she didn't even feel like it but it was profound for her husbands we are called to go first we're called to go first 
if the conflict or the fight gets out of control, we're the first to call reconciliation. If the conflict or the fight gets out of control, we're the first to apologize if there needs to be an apology. We should be the last to hold a grudge and the first to minister peace where there's chaos. And I want to leave you with this question. I want to question the husbands and wives this morning. Here's a question that's on every wife's heart this morning. You ready for this? Here's the question that I believe is on the heart of every wife this morning. How can I learn to trust my husband to lead? How can I learn to trust my husband to lead? How can I learn to trust my husband's leadership? Can I tell you how? One word, forgiveness. 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 Let go of previous past experiences. You're still holding records of wrongs. You're not even wanting, you're, you're still holding on to the man that he used to be and he's becoming a new man. Forgive. Let go. Trust again. Trust the Lord. Forgive. Are you with me? And you know what's crazy is that some of us, not crazy, it's a wrong word. What's, what's, what's ironic is that some of us are holding our husbands accountable for what other men did to us in the past. And you have a gold husband. You have a husband that so many women would be like, Lord, bless me with that. And you have golds. But yet there's trust issues and control issues and there's all these things that's going on and it was a previous relationship or an ex-boyfriend or a father figure in your life and I get it and it hurts and I want you to know that God wants to bring healing but I want you to know, God, I don't want to look at, I don't want to treat my man for something he didn't do. I don't want to subject him to something he doesn't deserve. I want to grow. How can I long for my husband to lead? How can, I have, how can I help my husband lead? The question is start trusting. Well, how do I trust him? Start forgiving. Well, how do I forgive? Start taking walks with Jesus and asking, Lord, will you just show me? Get with a mature married woman of God and dialogue. Get with some counseling. Find a person. Find a space where you can dialogue through things together. The second thing is the question that's on every husband's heart this morning is this. How can I become a leader worth trusting? How can I become a leader worth trusting? Well, let me tell you something. If your wife needs to forgive, let me tell you, men of God, start becoming a man she feels safe enough to follow. Start becoming a man she feels safe enough to follow. I guarantee you begin to read the word with her. You begin to pray. You begin to initiate forgiveness and reconciliation. You begin to come alongside her. I'll guarantee slowly but surely she'll begin to trust. And again, it's not magic, right? It doesn't happen overnight. You have people of God that will walk you through it. Sometimes there's arguments that need mediation. Y'all know about that, right? Sometimes you need to bring somebody in that's safe that can sit down and say, okay, wait a minute. Y'all both can't get to the conclusion. Let me help you out. You need someone to slap. One of, one of y'all need to be slapped on the head or maybe both, right? And you can't do it to each other, so someone else outside, but okay, I'll do it. But the question on every husband's heart this morning is, how can I become a leader worth trusting? And my answer is start becoming a man she feels safe enough to follow. I'm going to finish and pray with just a, a brief story. When, when my wife and I got called to plant a church, it was in a very inconvenient season in our lives. Let me tell you why, and I'm finishing here. 
because we were just married and we just had a baby and planting a church meant jumping into the unknown, taking financial risks and doing things that we didn't know what the result was gonna be. And most of the time, if you wanna be wise, you don't do that when everything's just new and fresh. But I felt the Lord calling and I felt the Lord speaking for several years. And when I began to feel the Lord speak that to me, when I began to feel him speak that transition was coming, you know what I did? I went to my wife and as head, I honored her as help by not telling her, hey, babe, this is what we're going to do. What I said is, babe, I trust the voice of God in your life. Let's pray together. And if we both get a yes, we'll go. But if one of us gets a check, we won't. Do you see that? And so what I did was... I felt like I got a word from the Lord before she did. I'm not saying that's how it always happens because she gets a word as well. But I felt like in this season, God was calling me to step out. But before I made that a definite yes, I sat with my wife and honored her as the position that she has, as help in my life. And I didn't dominate her. I said, look, babe, you are the confirmation in my spirit. I will not move forward unless you say yes. And to this day, you'll hear me say this. She's my courage when I'm scared. Right? She's my speed when I'm too slow, and she's my slow when I'm too fast. And as a pastor, and as a leader, and as a husband, as a father, I need her voice in my life. And in order for her to feel like I can become a man that she could trust, I need to make sure she knows that I'm a man that values her. And so this is what the world will say. Your value is based on your performance. And so men and women fight for equality. Well, no, we can do what you do and you can do what I do. I can do what you do. No, you can't. Biologically, in a lot of different ways, you can. And I don't want to be, men, hear me out. I'm not chauvinistic and there are some things we, but my thing is, if my wife balances the checkbook better than myself, then let her do that. Right? And if I do some things a little bit later, but we need to know that we come into this situation equal value different roles so we need to figure that out and not put one each other not put one another down are you with me here's what I'm gonna do married couples will you stand up babe will you come up here Now, singles, can you get behind a married couple? Singles, you're going to pray for married couples. If there's one around you, you know how, if not, that's no problem. I'm going to have you pray for married couples. Will you just place your hand on them? Singles, don't think like you don't got nothing to give them. You are anointed and you are called of God. We always have the married couples surround the singles. Like, you know, oh, you poor singles, you know, let me just pray for you. Nah, singles, this is your time to be like, you poor married couples, let me just pray for you right now in the name of Jesus. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say a prayer for the men, and then I'm going to have my wife say a prayer for the women. And we just want to bless you this morning, husbands and wives, amen. And then after that, we're finished. We'll have a beautiful Sunday. But um, we just want to bless you before we leave. So, so allow us to do that. Singles, will you just come alongside and just pray over their marriages as well. And uh, let's do this together. So, Heavenly Father, I come before you with all of the heads in this building. And even the ones that are not here. Lord, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would raise us up as men. And those men that are not here, I pray you would speak to them in your way. And I pray that you would raise us up to take our place 
Lord, I know there's a lot of pain and hurt because of divorced families, because fathers that have left. And Lord, we are not insensitive to that. We believe you are the father to the fatherless. You are the husband to the widow. And so, Father, we know you take that role. But for those that are here, I pray for these men here. Empower them, strengthen them, speak to them. Teach them to love like you. Teach them to sacrifice. Teach them to sanctify. Teach them to sustain. Will you allow their tongue to be a tool to build up and not a weapon to tear down? And will you fill Inspire Church with husbands and men that are called to lead the church and the household well? For your honor and your glory. Amen. Father God, I lift up every wife in this building, God, from young to old, Father. First off, God, I pray, Lord, that you would just bring healing. I pray for the heavy-hearted wives in this, in this place that were so moved by the word today that they're holding uh, unforgiveness, um, even disappointment about their marriage, where they felt it should be, and it's not there. I ask you, God, that you would just cover them with your peace touch their hearts father this morning god because in you there's always hope in you there's always newness and so father god we place their marriages before you god i ask god that you would strengthen these women as helpers father uh, god i pray lord that even they would see themselves as equal god but different and that being a blessing that these women are a blessing to their husbands, blessings to their families, God. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would help reprogram us. Some of us have seen poor marriages. We've seen the world and how they do it, God. Teach us how to love our husbands as you designed us to. God, I pray, Lord, that you would help our mouths, God. Give grace to our mouths, God. Show us when to speak and when to just pray and let you have your way, God. Help us to encourage and build up our husbands so that they have confidence in us as well. And so, Father, I bless every single woman, and I pray, Father, you would put a fire in them that they know that they are important, that you see them, God, and that you are with them in their marriage. In Jesus' name. And just right there, one more thing before we go. Just head bowed, eyes closed. I pray, Lord, for anybody that was discouraged by this message. Because maybe the marriage doesn't look like they want it to look. Or maybe they've even been in a place where there's divorce has happened. I, I pray your Holy Spirit would even speak to those that have been hurt. And I pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ even speaks to those areas. And so even this morning as we were very poignant with their married couples, I pray where there's any discouragement or any doubt or frustration, Holy Spirit, will you just come in and be the lover of their soul? Will you just come in and be the husband to the one who doesn't have a, a who, who's lost a husband? Will you be, uh, uh, Lord God, will you just be the, the spouse to the single, Lord? Will you just be that this morning? If there's anyone feeling discouragement or frustration, will they have peace and see this with a gospel understanding? I pray that we'd be celebratory about what you're doing in this church, Lord. And so I thank you for your word. Uh, it's a two-edged sword. And I, I, we thank you for your truth. And we ask a blessing upon single and married in this house. Lord, may we come back next week ready to love you and celebrate just the, the, what's coming up next in this season. We bless your name. And everyone in the house said amen. 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 God bless you guys. We love you guys. Have a wonderful Sunday.